Well, by my count, in the last 16 years, I've preached almost 650 sermons. So as I thought about today, I thought, what in the world can I say that I haven't already said? And the answer is nothing. And then a story popped into my mind. Years ago, we were in a series on the Old Testament book of Judges, and the story that we're going to talk about this week happened to be scheduled in a week when I was on vacation. And so Kara Koffler taught that week. She did a great job, but I was jealous because I have a personal connection to this story. If you're curious, it's the story of Gideon. It's found in Judges chapter 6 and 7. And if you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, it's on page 345. Well, as the story opened, the Israelites have a problem. Their neighbor, the Midian, neighbors, the Midianites, have been harassing them. Raiding parties are crossing over the borders regularly, destroying crops and killing livestock. Many of the people are so afraid that they've gone into hiding. And even though they haven't paid attention to God for many years, they cried out to him now for help because their security was threatened and their economy was in collapse. And he heard them. But by doing so, he sent one of the most unlikely characters in biblical history. Now, let me just say that the the narrator tells us right up front that the problems are their fault. He says right up front that they have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. So in answer to their prayers, God first sent a prophet who scolds them. He tells them, well, first of all, he, he is concerned because he doesn't think that their sorrow is heartfelt. They've regretted getting caught in his mind. Not, and they don't have remorse for what they've done. So God reminds them of two things. Number one, what he has done. And number two, what they have done. So first, in verses, uh, verse 9, he reminds them of how he brought them out of the nation of Egypt into the promised land. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. So that's what God's done. Now listen to what they've done. He confronts them with what they have done, disobeying God by worshiping the gods of their pagan neighbors. And then he says this, you have not listened to me. It's pretty harsh. The reasons for their problems actually didn't lie with God, but with them. It wasn't God who abandoned them, but they who abandoned God. But despite God's frustration, he hears their prayer and decides to do something. In verse 11, it introduces a vague figure called the angel of the Lord. And I won't explain a lot about it except to say that later Gideon realizes it's actually just the Lord. But it appears, this angel appears, comes to the home of an obscure farmer and appears to the farmer's son. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press, a little small room, rather than out on a threshing floor, which would have allowed the wind to blow, blow and separate the wheat from the chaff. And he's doing so because he's terrified, like many of the rest of them, of the Midianites. He's trying to keep a low profile. The angel gets Gideon's attention and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, a lot of guys would have beamed with pride if someone called them a mighty warrior, but not Gideon because he didn't see himself that way at all. He may actually have been wondering if God was mocking him, but God wasn't because God continues by saying, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Then before Gideon can object, he says, am I not sending you? Gideon, this angel is saying, you are the answer to the people's prayers. But Gideon isn't a sort of action hero type of guy. Even though God was serious, Gideon didn't see himself that way. 
He wasn't confident. He couldn't imagine how God would use him to drive out the Midianites. So Gideon raises two objections. And the first falls into the category of, what have you done for us lately? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So to the remember all that I've done for you speech, Gideon says, but what have you done for us lately? You say that the Lord is with us, but that can't be right because otherwise none of this would have happened. Of course, we know that God hasn't abandoned them. They've rather abandoned God, but Gideon's still got a point. God has done some remarkable things in the past, but that was then and this is now. But God doesn't back down. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon, God's saying, this time around, you're the Moses. You're the one to lead my people out of bondage. Still, Gideon isn't convinced, and so he offers his second objection. Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Now today, we would say that Gideon has self-esteem issues. But what's interesting is that God doesn't respond the way that you might expect. He doesn't launch into coach speak here and say things like, hey, Gideon, I believe in you. You've got this. Dig deep. Or trust your training. He doesn't even say you can do it. Instead, he says, I will be with you. In other words, Gideon is inadequate for the job. He wasn't trying to appear humble. He's just being honest. Humanly speaking, he wasn't the guy. But God says, I will be with you. And Gideon is to understand that that is enough. God's answers to discouragement is never the power of positive thinking, but the promise of his presence and power in our lives. Gideon's right. He doesn't have the best resume. He wasn't from a blue blood family. He was not a voted most likely to succeed in his high school yearbook. And yet God decided to use him, maybe because he understood his limitations. God often uses the most unlikely of people, perhaps because those who rely on their own abilities are either likely to become overconfident and then fail, or if they succeed, grow arrogant and refuse to give God credit for any success. God didn't try to convince Gideon that he was the only guy in the country who could pull this off. He didn't tell him that he'd searched far and wide and couldn't find a better person for the job. Instead, he just said, I will be with you. What God wants us to know is that no matter how daunting the task in front of us, he's with us and it will be okay. Now, God said some amazing things to Gideon, but still he's not convinced. Words alone for him are not enough. So he asks God for a sign. He tells God, why don't you wait here? He goes off and he collects some things for an offering. He bakes some bread, makes a stew, comes back. The angel instructs him to lay this all out on a big rock. And then the angel touched the offering with his walking stick, and it says that fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And then the visitor disappears. After the confirmation that he was looking for, God gives Gideon his first assignment. Now, he asks him to take care of the problem, a problem with the religious life of the nation. Now, remember, the people have strayed from God. 
And this wasn't your garden variety religious indifference. It wasn't just that they weren't going to church or partying too much on the weekends. They had abandoned God for other gods. The Midianites worshipped a god named Baal, Midianites and others in the ancient world. And Baal worship had none of the Judeo-Christian virtues of love, justice, and righteousness. Instead, it was riddled with superstition, cultic prostitution, and child sacrifice. Baal was a heinous god, and worship of him had to stop. So God told Gideon to tear down a local altar that had been built up to him. But here's the kicker. The altar had been built by his father. So here's Gideon, the guy who says, I'm the least in my family, and God tells him to rip down the altar that's in his backyard. And to his credit, Gideon didn't hesitate. He got 12 or 10 guys, and he did exactly what God told him to do. But out of fear of the people in the town, he did it at night. Now, Gideon's been criticized for this, although God didn't tell him when in the day to do it, so I so assume he just decided when he wanted to. As long as God, Gideon got the job done, God was, was happy. But the next morning, there was blowback. The townspeople came after him with pitchforks, demanding that his dad turn him over so that they could string him up. But Gideon's dad had a surprising response. He said, if Baal is really God, he can defend himself. And slowly, the mob went away. I think there's an important principle here in this particular part of the story. In order for God to use us, We need to get rid of the junk in our lives. Now, it won't be completely gone, but we need to be relentless about asking God, how do I need to change? And when we see something, it needs to be rooted out. We cannot tolerate sin in our lives. With that little task taken care of, it's time for the main event. But by now, the Midianites and their their allies have crossed the Jordan River with an army that numbers at least 120,000. Nearly four times the 32,000 that Gideon has been able to, to, to recruit. But we're told here that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's an unusual event in the Old Testament. Just a handful of times does the Spirit of the Lord come upon a person. But Gideon is still full of doubts. Four to one odds, did he really have a chance? So he asks for another sign, and it's a famous one. Now, he starts by saying, don't be angry with me, God. He's no, he knows that he's pushing God, just to, you know, pushing his luck here. So he says, I'm going to place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. So he places the fleece, he goes to bed, he gets up the next morning, and sure enough, the fleece is wet, the ground is dry, and Gideon squeezes out the fleece, a whole bowl full of water. Now, he says, um, if, it, if you can, can you do this just one more time, but reverse it, which is a little harder, actually, to make the fleece dry and the ground covered with, uh, with dew. But God did what Gideon asked, and when he woke in the morning, he found that the fleece was dry and the ground was wet. I think it's important here to notice what Gideon doesn't ask God. He wasn't asking for guidance because he already knew what God wanted him to do. He'd asked him to lead the army into battle against the Midianites. His question was far more basic and more personal. He said, God, will you really be with me? Now, Gideon's been severely criticized over the years for making these demands on God. People have called him weak. They cited his disbelief and cowardly behavior. But God was patient with him. Remember what he's up against. 
Outnumbered four or five to one, there's no way that he can bring overwhelming force to the point of attack because the overwhelming force is on the other side of the line. And so Gideon's critics do have a point, but Gideon was human. He's just like us. God asked him to do something really hard, so we probably should give him a break. Plus, God was gracious with Gideon and gave him what he wanted. And at times, he does the same for us. Chapter 7 brings us to the main event. Gideon's about to go into battle when God shocks him by saying, you have too many men. Now, if anything, Gideon doesn't have enough. But then God explains that 32,000 men, if they were victorious, they would boast and say, our strength saved us. Now, human, human nature is such that even the tiniest opportunity to take credit, we will. So God sets out to reduce the size of the army so that if they succeed, there will be only one explanation for their success. And God first told Gideon to send home anyone who was afraid. Now, soldiers are usually not willing to admit they're afraid, right? They're big guys. They did. 22,000 of them left. That leaves 10,000. And God says, there are still too many men. So he tells Gideon to let the men drink from the river. Anyone who kneels to drink, he says, send them home. Now, usually he'd think maybe every other guy, but it was 9,700 knelt to drink, and he sends them home. He's left with 300, 1% of what he started with. Now, a whole lot of ink has been wasted trying to figure out what the kneelers did wrong. Let me just tell you, the truth is, they didn't do anything wrong. This wasn't God's way of finding the few and the proud and the Marines. It wasn't his way of sorting out the, uh, the Navy SEALs of Israel. The point in reducing the army was to ensure that everyone knew it was God, not Gideon, who defeated the Midianites. So this was a completely arbitrary test. And my guess is that the 300 were left were sort of a mixed bag, not a particularly auspicious bunch. But I want you to notice something here. Gideon and his men are now outnumbered 400 to 1 or more. You'd think, given Gideon's history, he'd say, whoa, 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 wait a second, God. Could you repeat the fleece thing, like maybe make it levitate this time? But he doesn't. That's because something has changed in Gideon's heart. His fear has been replaced with confidence, not in himself, but in God. His weakness has been turned into strength, not his strength, but God's strength. So how does everything turn out? Well, the short answer is amazing. In the middle of the night, a Midian soldier has a dream that spooks the entire army. He tells one of his friends, another one tells another one, and pretty soon everybody is just totally in fear of the Israelites. And they all flee in the middle of the night. Gideon and his 300 men pursue them and drive them out of Israel. It's a remarkable story. But what it tells us is that God doesn't look for the strongest, smartest, and best-looking leaders to do what he wants. Often what he does defies logic. In Gideon, he used the weakest man from an average family in the least significant tribe to lead the smallest army into a battle against an overwhelming foe, and they won. But the lesson Gideon learns here is that the only thing that is important is that God is with him. Nothing else matters. I mentioned at the outset that I have a personal connection to this Gideon story, so let me tell you about that. My last year of working at General Mills, the senior pastor of the church I was attending, um, let me know about a job that he thought I would be a good fit for at the church. That conversation took place over several months, and as we got closer to making the decision, I got cold feet. 
I knew I'd only be in that job for a few years, and so what I thought about was, well, like, what's next? So I asked him, and he said, I don't know. It's hard to tell. And then he memorably said, we can't even be sure it will work out. We might not like you, and you might not like us. <laughs> now, understand he wasn't being totally insensitive, just acknowledging that sometimes things don't work out. So, needless to say, that conversation didn't do much to allay my fears. Not long after, I was reading in, in Judges chapters 6 and 7, and I saw Gideon in an entirely new light. You know those people I mentioned who were critical of Gideon? I was one of them. I always thought he just waffled, failed to trust God, you know, all of that. I realized, though, as I read, that he wasn't struggling to, to understand God's will. He wasn't even struggling with the decision to obey. He just wanted to know, are you with me? And with he was, he was all in. So I made the decision to leave General Mills, and I still remember the division president dropping by my office after I'd resigned and saying, you're doing what? He obviously had no category to process what had just happened. But I learned that what Gideon learned, and that is that if God's in it, it will be okay. So in one way, that story has led me all the way to today. In March, Kathy and I celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary COVID style. We still hadn't been vaccinated, so we got takeout and ate our anniversary dinner in our, in our dining room. We were a week or so away from letting you all know about this decision that we'd reached to retire and pursue something new. So as you can imagine, um, we were both confident in the decision, but we had a few doubts. Halfway through that dinner, Kathy said something. She suddenly said, John, you know, this is the third time we've done this. Third time we've done what? Well, she said, kind of take a risk. She said, we did it when you left General Mills to work at Wooddale. And we did it when you left Wooddale to start City Church. And each time, God has taken care of us, and it's led to a season of fruitfulness. Why won't he do it this time as well? So while we don't yet know what's next, God does, so we can trust him to provide. Now, let me just say to you here at City Church, I know that some of you are anxious about the future here. Not because I'm some superstar pastor, but because change always brings uncertainty. But know that the lesson of Gideon's story is for you as well. Sure, the future's uncertain, but if God is with you, you will be okay. Today, Kathy and I say goodbye to a community that has been our church home for the last 16 years. Recently, I learned the origin of the word goodbye. It's a 16th century word that evolved as a contraction from the phrase, God be with ye. It was something that people said to each other as they departed. And it didn't mean so long or see you later, but it was a heartfelt prayer that God would be with that person, would take care of them and present with a dear friend. So as Kathy and I say goodbye, just know that we're not saying so long. We are saying, God be with you all. We believe that God has great things in store in the years ahead. So City Church, don't have small dreams. Remember that we believe, truly believe, that anyone who's far from God will be better off if Christ is at the center of their lives. We believe that the message of the Bible contains the best, most comprehensive explanation of reality that there is, that it speaks, has a message that speaks to the deep longings of our soul, a message that is logically coherent, emotionally satisfying, and psychologically healthy, that in Jesus there is peace, meaning, and purpose 
guidance, strength, and hope for eternity that we would not otherwise have. That in growing to be more like Jesus, we learn that he can be trusted, that he is the wisest, most loving person who ever lived and offers us the grace and freedom and healing we need to flourish and to become the people God created us to be. You have the thing that this world so desperately needs. So step out in faith and trust that the best years of this church are still ahead. Now, before I go, I have one more thing I want to say to you. And to do so, I need to tell a quick story. Years ago, a famous pastor retired. The church had flourished under his leadership, and many attributed its success to him. A year or so later, the church identified his successor, and they asked this retired pastor to come back and say a few words during that first service. Toward the end of his remarks, he said, some people think that it's great pastors that make great churches but it's not. You see, it's actually great churches that make great pastors. And I think he got it right. In a year or so, you'll have the opportunity to meet someone new, your next pastor. And when you do, remember what that pastor said. And so in this, my very last sermon, as you have blessed me, let me give you this charge. City Church, make your pastor great. Let's pray. Father, you know about the Midianite armies in each of our lives. You know our worries and our fears, our hurts and disappointments. You know the places in our lives where we feel overwhelmed, inadequate, and unprepared. But we also hear you say to us, as you did to Gideon, I will be with you. Father, help us trust you. Grant us an occasional sign just to be reminded that you've got us in your hands. And give us the peace that comes from knowing that you're on our side, no matter what our circumstances may be. For you love us and are bigger than our problems and greater than our fears. And Father, be with City Church. May your will be done in and through it in the years to come. And all of this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.